This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Claire Bonnyman. And I'm in Dariwal. And welcome to The Loop. Min, how's it going? It's good. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's going, <laughs> living kind of a weird time zone. You're sleeping. In a weird time zone. I and am sleeping. Just... I'm waking up in the middle like at 2 a.m., 1.30 yeah. a.m. to be at work for 3, to be on the air at 4.38. You really decided, we said daylight saving time. You said... I took it to another level. Yeah, you really did. <laughs> because my first shift was after the clocks had moved forward, and I was like, what am I thinking? I'm uh, filling in for Scott Regeer, right? So doing uh, syndicated sports. Yeah, you're doing sports across the country. Yeah, across the country Hits. from Ontario, starting in Ontario and coming west. You look great, though. Oh, hey, thanks. I will say, you're looking sharp. You got a big old coffee in front of you. Alert. I I would like to celebrate something in the midst of this exhausting week. Okay. Um, Because, yes, we did do daylight savings time. And, I mean, you're sacrificing more than anyone, but all of us at least sacrifice an hour. Yes. So that this week, the sun is up past 7 p.m. Isn't Isn't it feel great? It's glorious. I wish we could, it could be like that all the time. I mean, it is for like half the year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then the other half, it turns into like, it's a very different I live story. in a cave. But I feel like if it was this way all year long, we wouldn't appreciate it. Yeah, you know? you're probably right. Part of it is watching that clock and yeah. seeing that it is still bright in my kitchen past 6 p.m. Yeah. That just makes me want to cry because a week ago, it was not that case. And I mean, how many hours really would we have to go back in order to have daylight in the winter after 7 p.m.? It would... <laughs> I don't think it works that way. We would get daylight from like 3 to 7. That would yeah, be it. That would be it. So maybe uh, it happens for a reason and we should just accept it and exactly. appreciate just what we Exactly. Just let the light in. Yeah, let the I light think we in. just solved the whole debate. That's it. And Settled. Done. Done. Um, but to continue with this, which um, it could be one of the worst metaphors, puns, segues, you name it, that I've done. Um, but this week... On the show, we're kind of talking about the idea of bringing more light to things, bringing yeah. things maybe out into the open. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. And nope. uh, those conversations need to be uh, had. And um, yeah, it's true. There is so much going on in the world that sometimes it's just not on your radar. Yes, right? 100%. Until someone puts it on there. Mm-hmm. I kind of had one of those experiences and yeah, we're going to dive right into it. Yeah. You know, things that were previously uh, thought better swept under the rug, but now... Yeah, let's have that discussion so that we don't have to sweep it under the rug or deal with ramifications or whatever uh, happens later on. And we're seeing this on like a really big scale in some ways. I mean, we talk about Disney being massive, obviously, but Disney's movies Turning Red is starting one of these conversations, too. It's talking about periods and when that conversation needs to happen for young men and women. Right. Um, And it's really interesting because, again, that's one of those things that it's like, oh, don't talk about it. That's not Mm -hmm. kosher kind of thing. But it's coming out and it's coming to the open. And it's part of this big push I think we're seeing to kind of make those unmentionables mentionable. Right. But aside from Disney, which is one end of the spectrum, sure, this can also be a lot darker than a Disney movie. And that's yeah. kind of where we're starting today because we're talking about human trafficking. And I want to caution that this may not be a story for everyone's ears. If it is not, you can skip ahead about 10 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. Canada also does have a national human trafficking hotline. So if you or someone you know may be a victim, you can call 1-833-900-1010. And we will also put that number in the show notes. But right. We're talking about this disturbing story of sex trafficking connected to young folks right here in Edmonton that you worked on, Mint. Yeah, and it, uh, initially you think of human and sex trafficking as something happening. You know, I always kind of thought uh, maybe the East Coast or the West Coast or a port city or what have you. 
but uh, it is absolutely happening right in uh, your city. And um, as a dad with a couple of uh, teens in the house, 12-year-old and a 15-year-old, this teen in our city kind of, uh, you know, has a story that, that really caught us off guard. Yeah, absolutely. And and it started with a release from the Alberta law enforcement team at the beginning of March, right? Yeah. It involved an Edmonton couple, just 20 and 19 years old themselves, right? Just the young kids. Yeah. And uh, they're facing human trafficking charges after a 16-year-old girl told her counselor about the fact that she'd been recruited and forced to work in the sex industry. And so the couple are, are charged with numerous offenses, including that they trafficked the girl using sexual services uh, advertisements, so, right? So creating ads, you know, using different sites online where people could go and look for sex and then uh, pursue it. Yeah. In the past, I know that I have, I have spoken to a couple of people about human trafficking for stories, mm-hmm. um, but it really, it is one of those conversations that we don't hear as much and we're not having enough yeah. really. Cause as you discovered and as you covered, this is happening more than people think or realize, especially since all you do need nowadays is a computer or a phone. Yeah. This certainly wasn't on my radar at all, but then all of a sudden it kind of, you, you become hypersensitive to it, right? And, yeah. um, uh, you know, then I talked to a local investigator who works with Alert, that's the human trafficking unit, trying to raise awareness uh, about this growing problem, which, you know, she says is, it's prolific, Yeah. right? And her name is uh, Staff Sergeant Frank Page. I'll tell you, I was with uh, one of the camera guys that I've worked with for many, many years. He's got a house full of teens too. And we mm-hmm. were kind of afterwards, just, st- we stood in the parking lot. We just talked about it after. We're like, holy, you know, like, holy cow. It caught I, you off guard. Yeah. It, it totally opened my eyes. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And, yeah. and Peter's as well. So, so take us back here. I mean, yeah. what happened in this particular case? How did this girl manage to get away from these people and tell someone what was happening? That's, that's just it. I mean, first and foremost, uh, hats off to this girl for finding the courage to do so, mm-hmm. right? Because in a lot of cases from, from the conversation I had with um, Staff Sergeant Paget, uh, that's half the battle is, is ha- finding the guts to be able to come forward and disclose what's been going on, right? Yeah. So not everyone does that. Uh, they don't even, like a lot of times they just keep it internal because they're so embarrassed and ashamed at what is kind of the road that they've been taken down. And then they're just scared, right? They just want to kind of put those people behind them or they, they, they might feel threatened by those people, right? Like if you go public or if you tell the police, we're like this, this, yeah. this, and this will happen, right? Uh, Frank Paget, the uh, the police officer, she says that human and sex traffickers are online. So that's that's where they go. They're out there looking for young girls to exploit and Paget equates it to the spam phone calls we all get, right? Oh. People calling and saying, hey, there's a package stuck at the border or your social insurance number has been suspended. You need right. to call this number. So, I mean, uh, not to use a fishing analogy, but I mean, it, you're, you're basically, that's what's happening. You're just throwing out the lure. Yeah. And for the most part, eight out of 10 people will just ignore it. But there's always two people that will let that call kind of go down the rabbit hole, right? Right. And and this is how Sergeant Frank explained it to me. Well, fortunately for her, uh, I commend her bravery and her courage. She actually approached the school resource officer and disclosed to the resource officer that she was being trafficked. And that's how we were brought into this investigation. And that was back in November. And so uh, we've arrested, uh, two weeks ago, we've arrested um, both of the accused. Now, in this case, too, you mentioned the accused. They're young as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, they are. Absolutely, they are. Alexander Basaraba, who is 20, and Brooklyn Jober Sutherland is 19. They were both arrested last month after uh, the police searched uh, two Edmonton homes. Uh, So they're also charged with child luring and with making, possessing, and distributing 
child pornography, right? So they were in court on March 10th and are jointly charged with nine counts, including trafficking a person under the age of 18, uh, ranging for a sexual uh, offense against a child and advertisement of sexual services. And so there's a reason that the police released their names as well as their photos. Um, the reason why we publish their photographs is because we, we believe that there are more victims out there. Unfortunately, these two uh, are known to use aliases. So the victims who are out there may not know them by their name. So the reason for the photographs that we released is so that people would recognize them and, and recognize that they are victims because they may not even recognize that piece of it either. Even with this arrest being made, right. um, I mean, we talked about this. This is not something that I, I really think about as an Edmonton problem, mm-hmm. but it is something that's clearly happening in our city, eh? Yeah, I'm with you. I, I didn't think it was an Edmonton problem or a Red Deer problem or a Calgary problem. I mean, you know that it, to a certain extent that it that these types of things are happening in the city, but not uh, to to this extent. I, I really, I had no idea uh, that sex and human trafficking um happened this way. I didn't I didn't have it in my head that it happened this way, right? It's um domestic trafficking and the people involved uh, apparently they use major routes, right? Like so roads between Calgary and Edmonton and Fort McMurray always kind of on the move. Right. Trans Canada is another big major thoroughfare. I mean it goes from one end of the country to the other. You know, the the way it works is they get people's trust, they befriend them, uh shower them with compliments and uh, gifts and then that's when the the switch flips. So here's Julia Dreidick, and uh, she's the executive director of the Canadian Centre to End Human Trafficking, and it's a charity that also operates a national hotline for victims and survivors. Yeah, contrary to what you see in the movies, this isn't an issue of people being forcibly confined and moved across borders. Overwhelmingly, traffickers situate themselves in their victims' lives as someone that loves them, but also someone who can be trusted. So sometimes they position themselves as a boyfriend, a friend, or someone else. They'll then love bomb them. They'll find out their biggest insecurities and fears and their greatest hopes and aspirations. They'll shower them with everything that they've ever wanted. But sometimes within a matter of days or weeks, they then turn things around, start withdrawing that, and using it as collateral to force individuals into the commercial sex industry. Love love bombing, right? It's funny. Actual term. That's a term that comes up with online dating and that I've come across in completely sure. different spheres, yeah. but it like, it, it's just, it's uncomfortable. I think yeah. and it, it's kind of frankly scary to think of all these intertwining lines and, and how this is a lot more common and it is local yeah. in a way. So how do kids and parents take care of themselves? Yeah. Right. How does this you, stop? Yeah. There's, there's definitely a lot of red flags that uh, kind of, you know, should uh, go off if, if you see a situation like this. I mean, I think being aware of, um, you know, the kinds of people being out there. I think that's that's step one, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, Staff Sergeant Page talked about all of these different ways to get at you online through social media. So the, all the different platforms, whether it's Instagram or Snapchat, TikTok, most, most of the people that are getting in touch with you uh, through these apps, you'll know them. Uh, 99% of the people, you'll know them. But I'm sure all of us have gotten like... Like Absolutely. Strange messages from people who are like, uh, who oh, yeah. is this person? It's a right? regular occurrence. And to get that's, us, that's us as adults. Yeah. Imagine how a 12-year-old or a 9-year-old or a 13-year-old is going to react to that. I think that's where parents and teens have to kind of ramp up their street smarts in dealing with complete strangers. Uh, uh, Sergeant uh, Frank Paget uh, has this advice. 
A lot of our victims are targeted online. Um, they can post something, um, you know, they may feel insecure about whatever is happening to them that day. I had a bad hair day, I had, you know, I gained five pounds because of COVID, whatever the case may be. And these predators know where to look for those vulnerabilities. Um, and these predators will approach them online and say, hey, look, no, I thought you were the most beautiful person um, that I've seen. And can we meet or can we communicate? And then that exchange develops into hey, you know, um, I, you know, you can make some money, uh, you know, send me some nude photographs of yourself and we can, you can make some easy money and then that progresses from there. So it's really, um, it's almost formulaic um, at times for these uh, predators, but social media and that social media platform certainly plays a large part of how they are targeting the vulnerable youth right now. I mean, it, it wasn't that long ago that I was a young woman sure. on the internet. Yeah. And thinking about the ways and the conversations that I have with complete strangers on platforms like Tumblr or Omegle or Chat Roulette was a thing when I was a kid, which is unbelievable to think of that. Yeah. You're just random strangers, literally. You have no idea. Yeah. Since then, the online world has only gotten more massive. Yeah. More complex. How challenging now is it for investigators since so much of this now is online predation? I think that is the the biggest challenge for them. It is so, it's like never ending. But th- that's how these predators work. That's th- this is their kind of their bread and butter, right? So many victims are uh, once they are kind of entrapped or they've got their hooks in you, they they are sold to Johns through online escort ads. Their images are hidden among photos of you know men and women who are willing participants in that industry. Yeah, and so uh, sex traffickers will search the internet for anybody who's vulnerable, right? Mainly young people. Um, and some advocates uh, had hoped that the pandemic uh, shutdowns, you know, would maybe stifle some of this uh, behavior, some of the human trafficking. But as, you know, these restrictions took hold, traffickers changed their tactics and they kind of took advantage of those, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, Julia Dreddick says that uh, traffickers have found ways to kind of adapt across uh, all of these different restrictions uh, and to maintain this form of uh, exploitation and just to continue profiting. But we know that since the pandemics, it's been an increasingly used tool for them to be able to identify, but then also start building those trauma bonds with potential victims. We're also seeing in different phases of the pandemic where there were lockdowns um, that we're hearing that there was increase in webcamming and what we call remote sexual activity. So not only is there more recruitment taking place online, but some of the exploitation is actually more often to take place online, especially when uh, cities uh, and businesses shut down. And so like some of these public health restrictions have made like these hidden crimes more challenging to track. And it's made it more difficult for victims to access help from from agencies that are providing it. So uh, many of users have, um, you know, used the public health orders as a way to further isolate their victims and hide their crimes. In the non-online world, you know, other tactics are being used to try and help victims, too. It's really eye-opening. And this is clearly a story that's stuck with you since you covered it, yeah? It it has. And, you know, like, you like to think that you're, you know, you've kind of told your kids about stuff like this. But this isn't a conversation I've had with my 15-year-old. And she's in grade 10. Yeah. And so... And it encourages you to start that conversation yeah. just so the kids know just as much as you do. I absolutely had this conversation. Like I, I came back home and I said, hey, you got to hear this story, right? Yeah. And they were kind of like, oh, wow, that's crazy. But they're on TikTok. They're on Snap. You know, they now now it's at least on their radar. So that kind of, you know, I did my dad, dad duty, I, I guess. 
Min uh, pop quiz time. Okay. What do coarse language, yeah. racism, animal cruelty, and the word stupid have in common? Those are all categories that I wouldn't choose for a hundred. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. I mean, close. Um, close? No, uh, not close at all. Okay. So, according to a survey by the Canadian Federation of Library Associations, okay. those are all reasons why some people have wanted books removed from Canada's public libraries. Oh, yes. I could see how that would be the case. Yeah. So, as an example, I actually went through uh, the list of challenges to collections and policies in Canadian libraries from 2018 to 19. And I wanted to play you one of the offending titles. Okay. Nobody is watching. Now is the perfect chance. Ready, bunny? Steady, bunny? Everybody dance! And clap your paws. Clap, clap, clap. And twist and twirl and shake your tail and wiggle and whirl. Oh, boy. <laughs> so that was just a little bit of Every Bunny Dance so... by Ellie Sandal. It very much continues on in that trend. The bunnies continue to dance and whirl and twist and jive. Um, so they're being exploited? Well, no. So the person who <laughs> challenged that children's book right. requested that it be removed due to the material being anti-individual, anti-evolution, and pro-conformist. Respectfully, what do you think? Yeah, I think, I mean... I. You know, certainly reading that or, or hearing that wouldn't take me to any of those uh, the labels. The pro-conformist, no? Because yeah. the bunnies are all dancing together, Min. It's a cult of bunnies. Right. Right? Yeah, because no? that's what frightened me right away. I mean, <laughs> I, I, you know, I think anybody can be offended by anything, right? But yeah. there has to be some parameters. Like, otherwise, we'll be taking stuff off every single shelf. Well, and this is the interesting thing right now, right? Because, right. I mean, I don't really know much about the process of banned books. Yeah. But right now, book bans, they're definitely on the rise in American schools, or at least challenges to books. Sure. Um, and so I wanted to kind of check in on the state of things here in Canada. Okay. Tony Samick is a professor in the School of Library and Information Studies at the University of Alberta, and she also currently serves on the advisory board of Canada's Centre for Free Expression. Tony, welcome to The Loop. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to know, because I am I am very clueless to this whole process, but what does it actually mean to ban a book? Well, I'll make a distinction because most of what we see in Canada is not actually a ban. Most of what we see is a challenge. So I'm just going to read you a quote off, uh, off the American Library Association website. That's like our big sister organization. Okay. And they say, what's the difference between a challenge and a banning? A challenge is an attempt to remove or restrict materials based on the objections of a person or of a group. A banning is actually the removal of those materials. And so challenges, it's important to point out, don't simply involve a person expressing a point of view. Um, they're actually attempting to remove or block access to something, not just for themselves, but block access of others. But as I said at the outset, um, most challenges are unsuccessful. So we don't actually see a lot of technically what we would refer to as banning in Canada. You know, in a generic layperson context, it's easy to conflate the two, but mm. the, technically the terms are a little bit different. Gotcha. But it is kind of, it's almost like a step. So I, the other kind of question that 
I have. When a book is fully banned, what actually happens? Like you say it gets removed, but like I'm just I'm picturing like a locked room with <laughs> shelves. Well, you know, that's a really good question. What happens? to? Well, listen, first of all, in libraries all the time as part of a regular activity, we do selection, right? Selecting things for our collection or for our displays, our exhibits you know, programs and so forth. We also do deselection or commonly known as weeding. What happens when somebody um, pursues a challenge? And actually to pursue a challenge, one must actually, you know, go through a fairly formal process. There's a difference between an informal chat on the floor of the library Mm -hmm. with a staff member, Mm -hmm. you know, just expressing a concern as opposed to filing a challenge. Um, And then if a challenge is filed, there's a whole reconsideration process that kicks in and anything can happen from zero to a hundred. So from zero, it may be through the whole reconsideration process. Nothing happens. You know, the item stays where it is. The rationale is given to the complainant about we, we respect your concern, but this is why we're keeping it and keeping it where it is. It may be that it comes to light that in the um, cataloging process, Um, Staff looked maybe a little bit too quickly at the illustration on the cover of, let's say, a graphic novel and classified it in young adult. And somebody challenged that, you know, this is in your young adult section. I really think it is adult material. Mm. Staff might look at it and go, you know what, you're right. We are going to relabel this, recatalog it and relocate it from the young adult section of the library to the adult section. And then there may be a case all the way at 100 where somebody, for example, says, um, you know, I have a disability. I was in your library the other day. I was uh, looking at an item in your collection that had very outdated terminology that would no longer meet, you know, human rights coach expectations in Canada. And unless this is an academic historical collection for research, this is not appropriate. The staff may look at it and go, you know what? You're right. We missed this. It doesn't warrant a place in our collection any longer. It is out of date and we will remove it. Then at that point, (laughs) um, that would be destroyed. That is not the kind of item that one may pass on, for example, to a book sale or to a charity or an exchange with the, you know, um, another system. Um, But it's a really good question. What happens when something is (laughs) taken out? And that too can be controversial. Um, And of course the public, by and large, is very, very sensitive to um, to a book not not being kept. It does feel like banning is this conversation that we're seeing more and more these days. Um, I mean, especially in the U.S. Most recently, there was a school board in Tennessee that banned Mouse, a book about the Holocaust, yes. because of, mm-hmm. you know, the swear words and the new drawings. I, I actually mm-hmm. remember reading Mouse myself. I was in university. So, you know, a little older for the content, mm-hmm. I suppose. But are, is this banning actually increasing in frequency or are we just talking about it more? There's No, in the U.S., there's an unprecedented amount of spike. I mean, it is unprecedented. This is like broad strokes, you know, political and ideological lobby groups. You know, this isn't in just individuals. I mean, you know, this is organized. But there's always been challenges in Canada, in the U.S. I mean, it's very much a common daily part of our work. We, we are a democratic institution. Our vision, mission and values um, have always been transparent about there will be um, collections, programs, and services aspects that may not be comfortable for all members of the community. So it's an everyday part of our work. 
most challenges historically have gone unreported. So it's really hard to say in any given year, like an accurate, you know, data challenges happen 360 degrees, you know, from all points on the political spectrum. It's not just a case of people on, you know, with a conservative bent challenging or people with a liberal social justice bent challenging. It's like everything 360 (laughs) degrees from a student to a teacher, to a parent, to a board member, even a library staff member at times, um, to a lobby group, friends of the library organization, politician. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. it's, It's It's very diverse. And the reasons for challenges are very diverse as well. Now, our producer, Samantha, got in touch with Edmonton Public Schools to find out if they've had any challenges against the books in schools. And in the last four years, they said they've had none, like no formal challenges. I mean, is that is that a good sign? What does that tell you? That's not a good sign. Because, um, first of all, we have the the demise of the school library in Canada, uh, what I would call high-functioning school libraries in this country that are serviced by a professional full-time librarian that are multilingual, multi-format, well-stocked, open, you know, all the hours that the school is open. We've had cuts to... um, funding teacher librarians in this country, and um, they have been in a very precarious position. And um, these are precarious roles. And, you know, there's no question that insider self-censorship happens. When you're struggling to keep your library open and to keep the staff that you have, (laughs) and you have to make a choice between this or that, it's very easy to fall into unconscious, you know, inside censorship. You know, it's a question sometimes of, you know, am I going to be able to keep my job in this institution over, you know, a fight that's going to come with this? What's more important, me being here in the library being open? <laughs> because what we're seeing in the United States, as an example, is, you know, harassment of librarians, um, job action against librarians, gag orders and so forth. So, you know, there's a lot to think about there. Yeah. I think so often when we hear about the pushback to the pushback, so to speak, um, like Mm. we're hearing about people complaining about a book being banned or things like that. But are there any specific instances you can think of where a ban was actually appropriate? I think when um, something is out of context for the mission values of, of that institution. And so you have to have policies, you have to know what your scope is. Mm. So what an academic research university library would collect, you know, for research purposes is going to be really, really different than what a public library collects, um, which is much more living collection in a sense. School context, again, it, it depends on, you know, provisions there and so forth. So you can't Even across, say, public libraries in Canada, we serve different communities. So what's appropriate in one community, um, how their collections programs and services are designed may be very different for another community. Um, I think we always need community consultation. So if we're talking about um, Indigenous resources or resources for the GLBTQ plus community, you know, we want to make sure that we're we're, uh, working with the communities that we're serving or if there's communities we're not serving that we're consulting them to see, you know, what can we be doing? Where can we make improvements? So it's, um, I would say it's very important that there's no arrogance involved. We do make mistakes. We do have blind spots. This is why we absolutely have reconsideration processes, because we know that something could go wrong. 
Um, so it's always good to have the process. I always tell students in our program that, you know, challenges are actually uh, in, in many ways a positive thing because it shows that an individual or a group are highly interested and engaged with the library. They care about the library. They care about what goes on at the library. And it's an educational moment. They may not know that intellectual freedom is a core value of the profession, not just in your community or in your province or in your country, but all the way up to the International Federation of Library Associations. You know, in The Hague, there is an international network around our professional values. So it's an educational moment to bring people into the fold, to talk to them, educate them about what we do. Um, and it's much better than being ignored, because if everybody in the community ignored the library, uh, we wouldn't get <laughs> a taxpayer you know, piece of the pie, and, and there would be a high-functioning site of democracy you know, that would erode in the community. So there's always a place for questioning what we do, yeah. and we welcome it. It seems like it really does come down to... It is a conversation, right? And it's about kind of the context Absolutely. around some of these books, but... There is there is this move of very intense kind of U.S. style censorship. Do you think that might influence the way that conversation, that context is found in Canada's libraries? Well, I think we have to step back and recognize that our legislation is different. Um, we have we certainly have limits on um, expressive freedom in Canada. Certainly, the charter provides room for exceptions. You know, when there's a broad threat of harm, we have a criminal code, we have human rights codes, and we're not operating in the First Amendment model of the U.S. So it's um, it's it's not helpful to for anybody to get too threatened thinking what's happening in the U.S. can be just automatically patterned and overlaid on the Canadian system because we have different legislation and a different way um, to balancing our understanding of human rights. And, you know, if we think about Article 19 as one of the directives in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you know, that's nestled in there with other human rights that we very much respect, obviously, around freedom of association and freedom to participate in the cultural life of the community and privacy and confidentiality and free development of personality. So we we, we really strive for balance. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't expect to see what we're seeing in the U.S. and Canada um, it, to the extent that we have we have a different system. The Loop is a weekly podcast from CBC Edmonton. And our team is Min Darwal, Leslie Goldstone, Corey Haberstock, Olivia O, Samantha Schwentek, and James Evans. Our theme music is Change Your Mind by Edmonton musician John Common. And I'm Claire Bonneman. Thank you so much for listening. Yes, thank you so much for listening. And uh, of course, I'm Min Darwal, and there is always so much more to know in the book. Heck right? yeah. Right, Claire? We appreciate everybody tuning in with us on Friday or whatever day you tune in. Yeah. So uh, keep on doing it. Leave us a rating, a review, wherever you download the show. Tell us what you think. Tell us what you want to hear. You can get in touch. We have an email, theloop at cbc.ca. Use the hashtag theloopcbc on social media or reach out to us on platforms like Twitter. I'm yeah. at Min Dariwal. It's pretty straightforward. I am at Nami Knob. It is pretty backwards. It is pretty backward. <laughs> and uh, yeah, give us a, send us a message and uh, we'll have a chat. And of course, uh, you can follow the show on CBC Listen or your favorite podcasting app. Okay, so Hurdle is like Wordle. You get six chances, but you have to guess a song. And it gives you the beginning and you can give up your guessing chance. Oh, wow. It to to get a little bit more of the song, right? That's crazy. It's really cool. So yeah, so listen to the intro, then find the correct artist and title. 
Um, Intro to the song? Yes. And if you need more time, you can skip up to six um, and answer in as few tries as possible. So are you guys ready for today's hurdle? Yeah. Yep. Okay. I think you guys might like this one. Huh. Yeah, Madonna. What is it, though? Like a virgin. There. Okay, good. You got it. Yeah. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.